things certain in life, but one thing you can always count on is that you'll hear Alan Jones singing Walking in the Air every Christmas. As a boy soprano, he released 16 albums and sold 6 million records all before his 16th birthday, and now with more than 40 albums under his belt, even more millions of record sales, and all alongside a TV and radio career, you definitely can't say he's rested on his laurels. I'm Genevieve, and it's my absolute pleasure to say Alan is here with me to talk about his very eventful life and career after that thing he did. So please welcome Alid Jones. Alid, hello. So lovely to have you here with me today. How are you? I'm okay. Lovely to be with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. So uh, I discovered that we have something in common. Okay. We both spent our childhoods in the back of a Vauxhall Cavalier. <laughs> Yeah, was yours yellow? Ours was gold. You see, that's so much better. Mine was banana yellow. So imagine being the chorister that everyone knows in the whole world and everyone teases anyway for wearing a cassock and surplus. And so your mum and dad decide to get a yellow cavalier if life wasn't bad enough. So all I heard were the comments, you know, ah, you travel around in a banana. And we also even had leopard skin seats. Come on. Yeah, we didn't have that. See. But it was also a 1983 Y-Ridge. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Wow. Oh, you've taken me back now. The hours of journeys in that uh, Cavalier. I was going to say, wasn't it wonderful? But no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it stayed in our family for quite a long time because when my brother learned to drive, he inherited it. So we had it for... Very long time. Oh, uh, you see, with us, because I, I grew up in North Wales where, of course, crime didn't exist. And so <laughs> everyone would go to bed with their doors open. But also, my dad would leave the key in the ignition of the car with the doors unlocked as well until one day it got nicked. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, it was a blessing in disguise, really, because mum felt that she really didn't want to be in a car that had been used by robbers to steal chicken from a farm or whatever it was. And so uh, we sold the car. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, OK, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. There is one song you're most famously associated with, but... I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but I was five years old in 1985, and as far as I knew, you had appeared out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But you had actually released 12 albums by that point, with your first album, recorded three years before when you were 12, reaching number two in the charts, second only to Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA. But I love the story of how you first got started, because it all came about after a woman you didn't know wrote to a local record company suggesting they make a record with you after she heard you sing in Bangor Cathedral and that kicked everything off. But that's the stuff that dreams are made of, right? Uh, yes, really. Uh, well, I presume so because I had no idea what was going on. Um, some would say I've spent my whole career having no idea what's going on. But, um, you know, it was... It was pretty weird because, you know, I'd never been into a cathedral in my life. Yes, I went to Sunday school because all my mates did, but that was the local parish church in Llandegvan, which was so small, you could probably get about 20 people in it. An aunt died, left a piano to us in a will. I wanted to learn how to play Beatles songs on the piano. Someone suggested there's a piano teacher who also happens to be the master of choristers in Bangor Cathedral. Go and see him. So off I went, sang a few scales. He told me to leave the room. I thought, oh my God, I must be terrible. But he was saying to my mum, wow, your son's voice is amazing. You know, I'd, I'd sung a bit in competitions and at school, but that was it. He said, you should send him to King's College Cambridge or Canterbury Cathedral. And of course, mum and dad 
uh, didn't want that. I didn't want that. And so I ended up joining that cathedral choir, which was tiny, glorified church, really. But in the congregation, come rain or shine, uh, was Hevina Orwig Evans, dear old lady. And she, without us knowing, wrote to the local recording company. And we got a letter saying, do you want to make an album? I was only meant to do half the album, incidentally. I was supposed to be the choir boy from North Wales. And there was supposed to be another choir boy from South Wales. His voice broke. So I ended up doing the whole album. And that was it. That album was in sailing Cardiff. BBC producer heard it, uh, asked me to go to Israel to record big shows for the BBC. And that was it. You know, my four-year career as a boy soprano was off, really. So down, she always got the first copy of every album. Uh, Havina and she had to give it the kind of the seal of approval if you like <laughs> uh, thankfully she always did but yeah without her who knows what had happened mm. so as well as releasing the albums you did so much in the following three years and was in such high demand as you mentioned you did these three BBC programs in Israel performed all around the world including at the Hollywood Bowl starred in your own BBC documentary which won an Emmy and you even turned down the Queen Mother because you were too busy uh, I mean so much <laughs> happened and as a child as well as probably not being able to remember it all I imagine you probably didn't really appreciate the enormity of what you were doing, although your parents probably did. <laughs> uh, well, to be honest with you, none of us did because, you know, mum was, uh, they're both still alive, thankfully. Mum was a school teacher, now retired, dad an engineer, and we kind of just made it up as we went along. You know, um, you mentioned turning down the Queen mum, and my biggest faux pas, if you like, was turning down Johnny Carson, who at the time was the biggest interviewer in the world. His show was watched by millions of people, and I was singing the Hollywood Bowl two nights in a row. And the, after the first night, uh, researchers came up and said, oh, Johnny Carson was in the audience. He loves your voice so much. He wants to dedicate his whole show to you next week. So you'll come on, you'll talk to him for an hour and you'll sing lots of music and it's just you. And I looked at my parents and none of us knew who Johnny Carson was coming from North Wales. No, you wouldn't. And I never forget turning to my mum and dad going, yeah, it means we've got to stay longer. You know, we've got a football match with school and I miss my girlfriend. Now nah, we'll just go home. <laughs> <laughs> so... I was the one that turned down Johnny Carson and that forever will be my Homer Simpson moment. You know, oh, you know, I could have been in Hollywood. But going back to what you were talking about, you know, all we really did, my mum, my dad and myself, was had fun in everything we did. You know, I was, as you say, in demand and the requests were crazy. You know, one minute Top of the Pops, the next minute Vatican. And I'd come home from school and we'd sit around the dinner table and mum and dad go, oh, you've had this offer. And I go, nah, I don't fancy that. Okay. Uh, and, and they just let me decide on what I wanted to do, really. So, you know, it was it was fun. It was mad. And I wouldn't have missed it at all. Uh, so on to the song that really exploded your career, Walking in the Air, famously from the classic 1982 animated film, The Snowman. I think there's a, I think it's against the law to not show it at Christmas now, isn't there? But um, I know there's a big misconception that you sang it originally rather than fellow chorister Peter Orty, but he can blame Sony and you can thank Toys R Us for making your version the definitive one. <laughs> and exactly that. Thank you for clearing it up. You know, every Christmas I get, and I don't know where people live because I've been saying this for for the last 30 years or whatever, you know, since, I, years. <laughs> since I recorded it, I've literally say, been saying, yeah, I'm not on the original film. If you have a DVD of it, then it could be that I'm on it because around 85, they put my voice on the DVD. So it could be me that you have been listening to. But on the original film, I wasn't around, you know, it was 1982 or something like that. And by 1985, I think Peter's voice had changed or whatever. And so 
you know, as you say, I'd released quite a few albums. I suppose I was the hot property at the time. And I'll let you into a little secret that not many people know, and it's quite embarrassing, really, that I was basically asked to record Walking in the Air for Toys R Us. And the advert was, of course, maximum 30 seconds. And the only bit they wanted to use was, we're walking in the air, we're floating in the moon. It's like, the people far below are sleeping as we fly. That was it. So that's all I learned. Uh, I went... <laughs> I went into a studio in London, which I use now, funny enough, for voiceovers, for Songs of Praise and all the, quite a few other programs I do. And I walked in there for, as an adult for the last kind of four or five years going, I know this place and I don't know how. And then they took me to a big studio they hardly ever use. And it was there I recorded Walking in the Air. So what happened, the 30 seconds I basically did in probably an hour, say, for the ad. And then John Altman, who produced it, said, well, we've got the London Symphony Orchestra. You know, they've recorded the whole piece We've got three hours left on the session. What should we do? And he went, let's record the whole song. What the hell? And I kind of piped up Welsh accent. I haven't learnt it. And, and, <laughs> and so John Altman got the piano out and he banged through the notes and taught me walking in the air. And I recorded it and the rest is history. So, uh, wow. yeah. I imagine Peter Alty is probably still seething about it somewhere. Well, he's you a, still never met him. Uh, he, no, I've never met him, but he's a brilliant singer and he, he sings opera now. Uh, so I think he's he's very happy in what, what he does. And, you know, he'll forever be remembered as the guy who sang on the original cartoon, which is great. Mm. The song got to number five in the charts the week before Christmas in 1985 and has been a permanent fixture on every Christmas playlist ever since. And I'm fascinated that you have such a great relationship with the song, as most people would probably be embarrassed about something they did as a child and would want to move on. But you love being associated with it now, don't you? Um, well, the, the check that comes through my door in January makes it a lot easier. Um, how I wish I'd written it. Um, but, but honestly, it's it's one of those things. When I was at college and stuff, I hated it and I was embarrassed by it. And then I, I got to thinking, you know, why? This is so stupid. There were years where I didn't do anything really in the interim between sort of voice breaking. Yes, I traveled to Japan. And then I went to college and, and then life started again, if you like. But, you know, I knew that every Christmas I'd become kind of a little bit relevant again with that song. And so, <laughs> you know, I needed to embrace it really. Otherwise I'd be sort of in, in the priory or something like that, you know, and I, I didn't want to be that person. So, you know, it was, it's one of those things now I look back on it and I'm so lucky to be associated with people's Christmases and not just one generation, but maybe three now. And also it's a quality product. You know, I love the actual narration of it as well, where I do it with a full orchestra. So we tell the story whilst the cartoon's playing and, and it's just magical, you know, it's part of Christmas. And for me to be associated with that, what's not to love really? Mm. From about when you were 14, there was so much talk about when your voice was going to break and predicting it being the end of your career. And, mm -hmm. and I was surprised to see that it wasn't just newspaper stories speculating about it, but people were actively asking you in interviews, how long do you think you have left? Which like, is terrible. They ask a 14-year-old that question and yeah. you, you handled it really well, but that must have been difficult because it was as if they'd written you off and you wouldn't be able to have a career as an adult. Yeah, and, and to be honest with you, that's when, that's the only time in my career, and I, this was probably much later on when I was 15, 15 and a half, where 
I kind of got fed up going on TV AM every other week and being asked by either Anne and Nick or Roland Dratt when my voice was going to... When's your voice going to break, Ellie? <laughs> I do a great Roland Dratt impersonation. God, that I, is very good. <laughs> I, I've never, ever done that in an interview in my life before. But there we go. Yeah, he used to go, yeah, yeah Alec. Alec used to call me Alec all the time. Yeah, Alec, <laughs> give us a song. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. Roland, I was very good friends with Roland Dratt, by the way, um, <laughs> and still am uh, friends with Roland Dratt. He lives in a sewer in Hollywood now. What about uh, Kevin the Gerbil? Are you still Kevin? Him? I was more of a fan of Errol because oh. <laughs> he, he was, was Welsh. Welsh yeah. yeah, of course. You know, um, uh, that this interview has taken a turn for the worse, hasn't it? Or, or maybe the better. I have I have the dubious honour of being blown up by Reggie, his little cousin, in the Roland Rat Christmas special, where it was probably one of the highlights of my career as a boy soprano because you have me in a suit and tie singing a, a carol and then Reggie dragging a Christmas tree behind and plugging it in. The minute he plugs it in, the whole thing explodes and they cut frame to me completely burnt my suit in shreds my hair sticking up and it took a whole day to do it but it was like the one of the best things that ever happened to me as a boy soprano because you know it was Roland Rat. but yeah the, the pressure I suppose towards the end got to me because you know I didn't really know how I could answer any of those questions because I knew that my voice would break I wanted it to break but you know when and where who knows you know I gave a performance when I was early on in my career which is the one that gave me recurring nightmares as a kid. I sang in the Royal Variety performance and I forgot my words, but made them up in front of the Queen and sort of millions of people watching. And unfortunate for me, I was singing Andrew Lloyd Webber's Memory. And as Rory Bremner told me as he came bounding up to me in the uh, interval, ha, huh, you were singing Memory and you haven't got one. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah thanks, pal as I'm sobbing uncontrollably, having, you know, almost lost about five years of my life to the stress. Um, but, you know, it was kind of, that was a very pressured thing to do, but I actually made the words up. But the press were saying, oh, his voice will be broken in a couple of days, you know, because I'd cracked and I'd gone a bit red. And, mm. and you know, four years later, I was still singing my soprano. So, you know, I took everything with a pinch of salt. But going back to what you were asking by the age of sort of 15 and a half, 16, I was pretty fed up with constantly sort of justifying why I, was, why I was singing. So I was with the people who always recorded my voice, who I trusted. And when I finished an album in Penarth in Cardiff, my treat was that we'd go for a Chinese to the happy gathering in Canton in Cardiff that evening. Well, I was four songs through an album on my birthday, my 16th birthday, and it just felt like a slog. I had a bit of a cold. I was in the church, the people were outside in the van, and I remember saying, you know, is mum there? And they were like, no, no, she's gone shopping. I was like, oh, does it sound the same? Does it sound the same? And I was always asking these things. And my mum was there in floods of tears because she knew that it was probably the beginning of the end. And as we went for lunch, I just said to the executive producer, do you mind if we don't go back? You know, I, I don't want to do it anymore. And he went, best decision you've made. And so my biggest worry was for the next five hours, would we go for a Chinese that night? Because I hadn't delivered an album. <laughs> uh, and unbeknownst to me, you know, calls were being made left, right and centre. And when I walked into the happy gathering on my 16th birthday, there were about 60, 70 people who I'd worked with throughout my career there. And we had a celebratory meal and that was it. It was great. Mm. Do you think, I mean, she said you, you continued well, two, from 14, another two years recording the boy soprano stuff, even though all the predictions were that you were going to fail. Astonishingly, four albums a year, 
clearly the record company thought you had a finite life and needed to milk you as much as possible. And there's oh, yes. a brilliant spitting image sketch where you're in the studio and they're telling you you need to record another 87 albums that week. Yep. But with hindsight, do you feel like you were worked too much? No, it's not work. My goodness me. I was very lucky that, um, or maybe it's part of who we are, but you know, I worked with great people, people who didn't exploit me or push me. You know, the people that recorded my voice, I'm still in contact with. And it was the most relaxed atmosphere ever. You know, I'd turn up in the morning and uh, they'd say, oh, we found this piece by Bach. You know, I said, oh, I don't know that. And I'd sit on the organ stool with Hugh Trigellis Williams, who was playing the organ. And he'd go, oh, it's a bit high. Okay, we'll transpose it. He'd do it there and then. I'd learn it. And then half an hour later, I'd record it. You know, I could probably record an album in four hours when I was a kid. So it was fun. And, you know, my parents... God bless them. Whenever we went to Cardiff, we always went out for nice meals or went to the rugby. Or And, and so I was living two lives, really. The schoolboy who did the football and all that business. But also then come weekends, I was getting these bonuses, which were amazing, you know, and all for standing on stage and singing, which is what I did anyway. From the moment I was born, all I've done is sing and harmonize with things and find music in things. So it was easy really. Um, now, if I did it, I'm not sure what it would be like, because there was no blueprint when I did my recording. I remember signing to uh, Richard Branson in his boat in Regent's Canal. And it was only recently I remembered this. The only reason he signed me to Virgin Records was because I stopped his dad from smoking. <laughs> How brilliant is this, right? So his dad would be in the car wanting to kill people for cutting him up. And he'd instinctively go for his cigarettes. And instead of going for the cigarettes, he'd play an old cassette of mine. And he told his son, you should sign this boy. He can stop you smoking because I don't smoke anymore. <laughs> and Richard must have thought, yeah, for the businessman must have thought, wow, we're onto something. You know, let's sign this little boy. So I remember him saying to me, I haven't got a clue how we're going to sell your album because it's classical. So we'll just sell it like pop music. And that's what we did. Mm. Um, you know, I loved being signed by Virgin for the simple reason that I was vaguely cool for the first time you know walking around in my gary moore shell suit or whoever else they had signed you know um, <laughs> so i'd go down to london and i'd literally fill my bags with merch <laughs> <laughs> speaking of being cool you sang at bob geldof and paulie Yates's wedding yeah tell me how you ended up in the official wedding photos because for anyone that's not seen it just google it you'll see allard little allard Standing behind David Bowie, resting your arm across the back of his shoulders, alongside George Michael, Simon Le Bon, Spanner Ballet. It's like a real who's who of 80s pop royalty. That that must have been amazing. It was uh, the craziest day probably ever. Bob and Paula are, are lovely people. Of course, Paula no, no longer with us, sadly. They are genuine, kind, lovely, and they made me feel a million dollars. You know, I it was... I'd, I'd worked with her dad uh, quite a bit because he played the organ. Um, and yeah, for a kid from Wales turning up for this wedding, it was probably the equivalent of Posh and Bex's wedding or something like that, which is without the thrones and a lot more rock and roll. Um, <laughs> believe me, I was 13 and I was in the middle of it. And yeah, it was just phenomenal. You know, they had a, a band after the wedding. And of course, can you imagine who went up to sing? Everyone, you know, and... And I was there sort of being cuddled by Paula and dancing with her. And, and yeah, it was just, it was a phenomenal day. You know, I sang during the ceremony. And I remember Simon Le Bon coming up to me and me kind of being bright red because he was like, from Duran Duran, you know. And, 
and embarrassingly in David Hughes Comprehensive in North Wales at that time it was trendy to wear one luminous green sock and one luminous orange sock maybe you did it as well no but I did wear um global hypercolor t-shirts you know those ones that you yeah, change yeah, yeah. color in the heat yeah I don't know who decided that'd be a great idea because you just always change color like under your armpits yeah. like who decided yeah. this was a good idea <laughs> well, well who, who decided that Aled should wear his luminous socks for Bob Geldof and Paulie Yates's wedding but actually in, in a way it was a good thing that I did because for some unknown reason after the wedding ceremony Bob decided that we should be playing baseball um, or rounders or whatever and it was Bob's team against Paula's team and it got to dusk and there were people like you know George Michael playing and you know crazy Billy Connolly and all in tails and top hats and it got to dusk and everyone was like oh we can't see the ball and Bob went Al take off one of your socks. So I took off my luminous green sock, put it around the ball and they carried on playing for another hour. You know, it was just, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was incredible. You know, I, I embarrassed myself, but now I look back on it and I'm quite happy about the fact that whatever I went to any of these events, I was the little nerd with his autograph book. And, and actually it was a fun thing to do because, you know, in the Rock and Pop Awards or the Brits, whatever they're called now, I was always the token classical artist. And I'd go around and get the Pet Shop Boys signature and mum would sit next to, I don't know, Roger Daltrey or something. And she'd go, wow, this is amazing, you know, for a primary school teacher from Wales. And I'd get everyone's autographs. And then she and I, or my dad and I, or all three of us on the train journey home, was, I mean, we'd go through the book and see who was there and what they said. and mm. And it was just so... It was just three people having a laugh and enjoying every moment, really. Okay, it's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. Okay. Hello, Genevieve here. Just wanted to quickly stop and say if you're a regular listener, thank you for hitting that play button again. And if this is your first time here, welcome. You have five whole seasons of Nostalgia to catch up on. So if you haven't already, go and check out some of the episodes you may have missed and please do follow and subscribe. It's totally free. And if you'd like to support the show, stick around at the end to find out how. And in honour of Alad, I have a special Christmas competition where you can win a snowman jumper and scarf, just like the one David Bowie wears in the classic film. So so for your chance to win, just go to celebritycatchup.com slash win and enter your details. But be quick, as you only have a few weeks to enter. Now, back to the Latin zone. You mentioned there that you kind of unintentionally had your last recording session as a boy soprano on your 16th birthday after 16 albums and 6 million record sales. Um, but I find it really interesting that you weren't sad at all about retiring. And in actual fact, it was like the opposite with the general feeling of relief. Yeah, because I knew I'd sing again, whether I'd sing in the bath or whether I'd sing in the Albert Hall wasn't really up to me. But, you know, I'd, I'd always been happy to sing. Uh, the fact that then that singing had taken me all over the world. Yeah, I'd had four amazing years, but without a very, very uncomfortable operation, um, <laughs> I knew that, which was threatened on me many a time, let me tell you. I think it was Henry Mancini who threatened to do the operation himself uh, in a studio in Wembley once when I was about 14, singing the theme tune to uh, Santa Claus the movie. And I, I always remember looking nervously at my mum as if to say, it ain't going to happen, is it? But, you know, I knew that, 
the future beckoned and stupidly, really, I didn't really know what I was going to do. All I knew was that I wanted to do something in media, such as the nature of the business, that if you sing with a rather nice voice and you're a little kid, they want to offer you opportunities to do other things. And, Mm. you know, Wogan always joked that I wanted to take his job as an interviewer. And so there is a, you know, and and Terry was a dear, dear friend of mine. Um, he was my radio dad and I was his radio son. I learned a lot from from Terry over the years. But I had the dubious honour of being on his TV show more often than any other guest. And, you know, I once interviewed him because he said, all right, you want to take over my job? Let's see how you get on. And he was an outrage because every question I asked, he answered with just Prince Philip. <laughs> Prince Philip. And it was just, Terry, I could kill you. You know, it was just, <laughs> thanks a bunch, mate. This is in front of like 8 million people or whatever. But so I'd had all these other opportunities. So I knew I wanted to do something in media, but didn't know what. And again, it's weird how fate plays a, a part in all this. Because, you know, there I was in North Wales. I had a very, very uncomfortable week when I announced or whoever wrote this press release should really uh, hang their head in shame because it said I wanted to retire on a high note. Mm. <laughs> beautiful so um off i went to the bbc in bangor and spent a week doing back-to-back interviews with tv and radio shows all over the world america japan australia you name it saying yes my voice is broken don't know what i'm going to do next yeah whatever you know and it felt a bit like that and so it was it was a relief really to then go back to just being a normal well as normal as i could schoolboy. but again fate played a part in it because Japan got to hear of my voice for the first time. I couldn't sing Boy Soprano. So what did the record company in Japan decide? I know. Let's get Alad to narrate Hansel and Gretel in Japanese whilst the Vienna Boys Choir sing it. That way he can be over here doing promo and we'll release all the albums, um, which they did. So between the age of 16 and 18, that kind of years where I didn't really know what I wanted to do, I'd go to Japan. And I'd narrate Hansel and Gretel saying, Bokwa, Aledo Johnstes, and all this sort of business. So that kind of bridged the gap, really, between singing as a boy and then coming back and going to college and singing as an adult. Mm. One of the things that you did during that time was the classic, some say infamous, royal version of It's a Knockout, (laughs) where you served as the herald announcing the games. And for non-British listeners, the best way to describe It's a Knockout is a cross between wipe out and Takeshi's castle. So consequently, there ended up being a situation where Tom Jones, Sir Tom Jones, was throwing a giant ham at Superman legend Christopher Reeve while he's trying to crawl across a spinning log and John Travolta is chasing and tackling a giant onion across a field. Check it out on YouTube. Yeah, it's just, just a normal day for me, really. Yeah, It's very bizarre, <laughs> but it's very funny, especially Princess Anne. She's hilarious. Uh, what were your memories of that day? Uh, well, Princess Anne was in it to win it. Uh, which I loved. Um, <laughs> it was, I love your description of it because it was Wipeout v- versus Tadeshi's Castle. Um, well, the world had never seen anything like it in royal terms before. You know, you had uh, Andrew, Anne, Edward, and Fergie, respective superstars in their team. And we're talking A list superstars, yeah. you know what I mean? And for some reason, uh, the presenters are Les Dawson, Sue Pollard, and I'm the Herald wearing grey tights, a pork pie hat. Needless to say, it's the closest, I think, at the time, my girlfriend came to finishing with me when she saw it going out. I made the mistake of watching it with her and her family and the looks they were giving each other as in, dear God, alive, and you're going to carry on going out with that thing? Um, <laughs> it was it was mental, and and that's the word to describe it. And 
funny enough, I had been asked to do it and I thought it was great because I used to love It's a Knockout. I loved the craziness of it, but I never expected it to be as crazy. You know, you've got meatloaf going like crazy in the thing, um, really competitive. As you say, you've got Tom Jones uh, up against Krista Berg in one competition. It's just, uh, and, and, and little me with the poshest voice for some reason going, and now, ladies and gentlemen, my lords, ladies and um, what the hell? But I'll tell you a little story um, in, in that it was during my O-levels, um, aging myself now, or GCSEs as they are now, and I basically had my O-level maths the morning of the recording. So I would I planned to go and do my O-level maths, which I thought was an hour and a half paper from nine o'clock till 10.30. Then my dad was waiting for me in the yellow Cavalier uh, <laughs> to take me to Stoke to Alton Towers where it was being filmed. And then we'd do the show and then come back and I had another exam the next day. Taking my O-level seriously, obviously. Um, who needs maths? <laughs> yeah, who needs maths? God. Yes, thank God. And I remember going into the hall in David Hughes Comprehensive that morning. And, you know, as you used to sit down and they'd say, well, we give you 10 minutes to look over the paper before you start. And I remember looking at the top of the paper and putting my name in. And where I thought it was going to say 1.5 hours for the maths test, it said 2.5 hours, which meant I would be late for the recording of It's a Knockout. So I banged out my maths exam in an hour and a half. Why? Just so I could be the herald in Royal It's a Knockout. I actually said to, uh, I got a C in my maths and I said to Edward once years later, I said, if it wasn't for you asking me to do this show, I probably would have got a B in maths. So there you go. So after your A-levels, you joined the Royal Academy of Music and it's fair to say you enjoyed student life. You were the president of the student union, ran the student bar. You were a bit of a party animal. Um, And then after starring in a couple of plays, you decided to go to drama school and trained at the Bristol Old Vic, where you also qualified with advanced level stage fighting in unarmed combat and sword fighting. Have you ever used those skills since? (laughs) I have. Believe it or not, I have. Uh, Yeah, I, I, I was probably my proudest moment in Bristol. Um, it's fair to say that I did definitely have my childhood in the Royal Academy of Music. You know, my my brain, of course, knew exactly what to do as far as the singing was concerned. I think my second year exam results uh, said that, you know, his brain, no one can teach him about what to do with his voice. But unfortunately, his voice isn't doing what his brain's telling it to do, because I was way too young. Uh, so the two years I spent in Bristol were fantastic really change of scene change of disciplines and bristol instill in you that you're not to put on any airs and graces you know you don't expect to do you don't expect to have a makeup artist and a wig mistress and all the business you do your own stuff if you're in a play or whatever and you know i end up leaving bristol and getting the role of joseph in joseph and the amazing technicolor dreamcoat which was the largest musical in the world at the time so you know, um, there I was with wig mistress, makeup artist, PA, the lot. And it was crazy. You know, I was way too young again to be going into a year role in musical theatre. Crowds got up on their feet at the end. But my voice wasn't really mature enough to be doing that at that age. So, you know, I ended up saying no to things like Les Mis and, and stuff and and just bided my time, really, and and trickled back slowly but surely. So while you were doing Joseph, you met your wife, Claire, at a photo shoot, who you then married in 2001 before your daughter, Amelia, was born a year later. And then Lucas followed three years after. And Amelia, of course, amazing actress and singer. 
The star of the Oscar-winning film Coda, the fact she wasn't nominated for Best Actress is a travesty. Oh, thanks. I'll tell her. <laughs> you you must be so proud. So all the talk recently of Nepo babies must really annoy you when people make a connection between the two of you. Do you know what? People can make any connection they want. I care nothing about it. She's definitely not a Nepo baby. The, the thing I love more than anything is that, yeah, I've got massive sway with the film world in Hollywood. You know, if you want a role in an Oscar-winning film, just come and see me. You know, I'm the, I, oh, honestly. You, know, you can I'm make the, it happen. <laughs> I'm the Don, you know, who I don't know in Hollywood. Is, uh, God, it's it's such a joke. I've seen the pictures of you with Sly Stallone and Robert De Niro. I don't know. Well, yeah, well. And, and do you know what? Really, I was going to swear then, this is the thing that really pees me off more than anything else, okay? That, that photo is taken because I interviewed them for Daybreak when I used to present the uh, breakfast show for ITV. And it was the highlight of my time during Daybreak. I've got my arms around two of my heroes. I loved the Rocky films growing up, Sylvester Stallone and Robert De Niro and the greatest actors ever. And every time I show that photo to anyone, they go, oh, is that in Madame Tussauds? I'm like, no, I was actually there interviewing them. They're real people. They were smiling because they were happy with my questions, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I have no influence. And the fact that little Emilia has worked her socks off since she was nine years old and no one knew she was my daughter. Mm. You know, she got roles in things that I have no influence over. And the only time people found out that she was my daughter is when her film, where she'd spent six months learning American Sign Language off her own back for the film, won the Oscar. And then everyone's like, oh, yeah, Nepo. That's how she got into the industry. <laughs> yeah. That's right. I'm a really good actor. You know, I went to Bristol Ovic Theatre School to train in acting. And I can tell you now, honestly, I am the world's worst actor. That's why you're a singer. <laughs> That's why I'm a singer. But one thing my uh, little Mills has got, and maybe it's come from me, is that she's got an amazing work ethic and she doesn't mind putting the graft in. And, and that's something that I've always enjoyed doing as well mm. uh, much like you you know you, you have done your research you know everything and when I go in into an interview I always feel that that's so important because it's just you know every interview should do that and I've done many things where you know the first question has been oh I've got Alec Jones on the line uh, so what have you done since walking in the air and you're like mm. oh god <laughs> you know so um yeah, no, she, she works hard and she deserves everything that comes her way. She's only a youngster. She's 21. So she's got some great projects in the pipeline. And um, I'm just proud dad from the wings. Mm. Back to you. You first presented Songs of Praise when you were 14 and then returned to it in 2000 and have co-presented it ever since. And after singing on the programme, it gave you a chance to relaunch your career as an adult singer and you re released your self-titled album, Allard, in 2002. That must have been nerve-wracking. How much pressure did you feel after all the press scrutiny from when you were a child suggesting that your singing career would be over once your voice broke? It, isn't this a weird thing that the pressure wasn't on the first album? There was more pressure on the second album when the first album Aled went to the top of the charts it put a huge pressure on the second album which was called Higher uh, thankfully that went to number one as well and then I could kind of relax a little bit but yeah how bizarre is it that you know I presented Songs of Praise when I was 14 I was terrible by the way at presenting Songs of Praise when I was 14 it's worth a look just for the amount of spots I have on my face um, we've all been there and <laughs> going back to it I only went back to it because it was uh, uh, coming from my old cathedral and it was a uh, dear researcher called Rowan who put a neck on the line and said we should get out there to present it and you know they were like you crazy this program is watched by 13 million people we don't want some idiot presenting it he can be a guest 
And she went, no, you should get him to present it. I've seen him do stuff on Welsh TV. And so I presented that one program from Bangor, which people liked. And then if you said to me now, you're going to get a record deal with Decca or Universal, largest record company in the world, on the back of singing For Once in My Life by Stevie Wonder, but half speed. I would laugh out loud, but that's exactly what happened. You know, I sang for once in my life, half speed on songs of praise, and that was it. And it's, I haven't thankfully really looked back as far as recordings concerned. Um, you know, it, this ne new album is, I think, number 43 or something in my life. And uh, I still get excited. I still get a little bit nervous or apprehensive, probably is the word, and still dead proud as well. So, quite literally, dozens of albums followed yeah. <laughs> after Alad. But um, all the while, you've been simultaneously maintaining this TV. TV and radio career. You had seven years on Radio 2 and then became a permanent presenter on Classic FM, the radio station of choice for doctor surgeries up and down the country. And dentists. <laughs> and dentists. <laughs> in 2013, uh, you hosted ITV's Weekend for four years and of course competed in the second series of Strictly way back in 2004. And last year you were the traffic cone on The Mars Singer. Um, the one thing I'd completely forgotten about for some reason, I'm not sure why, and you just mentioned it, was that you co-hosted Daybreak, the relatively short-lived ITV breakfast show that ran between GMTV <laughs> and Good Morning Britain that we have now. Um, and I remember at the time that there was a lot of hoo-ha around the original launch and then failing ratings, and then you were brought in as part of the big relaunch to rescue the show, but then unfortunately it ended about 18 months later. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you just really like pressure? It must be hard joining a show where the press is already out to get you and they're just waiting for you to fall. Although I, I guess that's what your boy soprano career was like. Yeah, right? and, and I don't I don't think about things that way, you see. And I think of it as a new experience, really. I was working with my mate as well, Lorraine, and I wouldn't have done it without her, really. You know, for me, she's the best at what she does. I learned so much from her in 18 months. She's an amazing broadcaster, but more than that, an amazing journalist, but equally a lovely heart and a lot of fun. Lorraine and I always say to one another, had we broadcast what we were talking about during the breaks, oh, we'd still be there doing it. I can tell you that for nothing. Um, <laughs> there was many a, a story halfway through when we'd have to come back and go, oh, hello and welcome back. You know, it's like, really? Wow. Um, it was a great experience for me. I'd never, ever um, presented a show on ITV. I didn't go into ITV wanting to present Daybreak, believe it or not. I went in because they wanted me to present a couple of shows of this morning during the summer, which I would have much rather do. Um, it's much more suited to my sense of humor and my joy of life, I suppose. Um, and they said, well, we won't let you even do that this morning unless you do a screen test for Daybreak. And I did. And stupid me got the role. <laughs> and, you know, I I did it to the best of my ability. I realized there and then that I wasn't a news journalist because if there was breaking news, I, I didn't really enjoy it. I'd much rather interview somebody from Hollywood or, you know, an actor or a musician that was due to come on the show. So it was a fantastic experience and I wouldn't have missed it for the world, actually, because it then, as you say, led to me having my own chat show, which I probably loved more than anything I've ever done on TV, except for Songs of Praise. I love doing long form interviews. So on television, that means anything over kind of 10 minutes. And there I was doing 12 or 14 minutes, which meant you have to read the book, you have to go and see the show, mm. you have to know what you're doing. And, and I love the fact that we had hardcore guests on there who 
wouldn't normally be seen on a daytime kind of TV show, actors who didn't really want to do this sort of thing, but they trusted me. And so they came on and it was a mixture of music and chat and what's not to love. You know, I absolutely love doing that show, but you know, I'm, I'm grown up as well. You know, the fact is that nothing lasts forever in the showbiz industry. And whilst you're doing it, there are hundreds of people in the wings ready to take over and that's just life, you know? So I've always been that person that I realized nothing lasts forever. Boy Soprano doesn't last forever. TV shows don't last forever. Luckily, so far, the singing has. So, um, you know, watch the space, I suppose. As we're approaching Christmas, we should give a quick mention for Bobby Dean Saved Christmas, the first book <laughs> in your children's series you wrote a couple of years ago. Um, and a nice stocking filler for any five to seven-year-olds out there. Thank you very um, much for that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that, that. That came from lockdown, really. You know, uh, as we all did, we all went, what should we do? And uh, I'd always had this idea for this mad kid who kind of goes on adventures and using his voice to get him there and back. And it was really fun to do. I worked with a brilliant illustrator. And yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's another string, I suppose, to my uh, shabby bow. So talking about now, you just released your, you said, 43rd album, One Voice, Full Circle, the fourth instalment in your series of One Voice albums, which are so clever as through the magic of technology, you are duetting with your younger self using old recordings. But there's something a bit special about the songs on this album, isn't there? Yeah, well, it's they're, they're all kind of special in a way. You know, the One Voice, the first album was... It happened so generically and everyone says that it was kind of almost made up by the press and it wasn't at all. I went home and my dad and I were talking about albums that I'd done and stuff and he turned around and said, well, you know, there's an album of yours not released in the airing cupboard. And I'm like, oh God, no more wine for dad. <laughs> um, but actually there was an original tape in the airing cupboard of a folk song album that I'd recorded that had never been released because my voice broke. I was listening to it with my musical director in the car one night and I was sort of saying, well, that was good, isn't it? And then I started singing along with it. And he went, wow, this is amazing. And we looked into it. No one had ever done it in the world before. And this has now led to the fourth kind of, and final go at it. That's why it's called Full Circle, really. And, you know, my mum and dad have got drawers upstairs with all kinds of rubbish from my career. You know, programmes that are signed and my name on, that used to be on doors and stuff in different venues, Hollywood Bowl and stuff. And in there were like these shirts that were one yellow, one blue, one red. And I'd be like, God almighty, did I wear those when I was a kid? And she went, yeah, with these bow ties. And I was like, what was I thinking? And she said, a lady in the BBC made them for you for this series you did. And I was like, I don't remember that series at all. So I managed to get a colleague to find the series from 1983 and... I listened and watched it, and there was such a mix of music, everything from Panis Angelicus to Sailing to Bright Eyes, so pop, middle of the road, Scarborough classics, Fair. Scarborough Fair, a real favourite. And we went to the studio, and it's for my producer, it's a nightmare, because you know all these tracks were recorded on one mic and stuff, so we have to take instruments off and put them on and change the voice to stereo, and it's a real labour of love. But... 
this is probably the one voice I'm most proud of for the simple reason that with the others, I've learned really how to sing with Little Aled. And now it really does feel like we're the same person. So, you know, I'm really proud of all four of these albums um, because we made world history. If anyone hasn't heard Aled's One Voice albums, go and listen. It's really something to, to hear you and Little Aled sing together. I don't know, it's, it's, it's difficult to describe. The voices blend together so seamlessly. I mean, of course, they would as you singing, but it's like the most perfect duet you can hear. And do you know what the weird thing is? Uh, I'm being brutally honest with you now that when we recorded the first album, first track we recorded was Eriske Love Lilt. And when both voices sang together, it was like all time had stopped. And I sang two lines. And I looked at my producer who was in the same room and he went, every hair on my neck is standing on it. I said, it's like, I haven't progressed at all. I haven't got better. I haven't got worse. But it's like I'm in that moment. I'm phrasing it exactly the same way I did when I was 12 years old or 13 years old. And I'm breathing in the same places without thinking. It was really weird, but also just lovely to be able to do it. And you're also going on a mammoth tour next year too Uh to support the album. Can we expect a hologram of Little Allard, a bit like the Abba Spectacular, so that you can sing together on stage? Yeah, I've got the budget for that. Yeah. Um, (laughs) You can have a cardboard cutout. How's that? (laughs) Which will look really grubby by date 78 or something like that. Um, To be honest with you, this is like a tour I've never done and I've toured all my life, but this is very much kind of an evening with. So I sing about five or six songs, but it's lots of stories, but also lots of really embarrassing photos from the archive, from the family archive as well. And and just some stories from my life, really. And, you know, I think it's 70 to 100 dates or something like that next year and the year after. So it's, you know, it's going to be a great experience. I love being on the road, but also doing something different. I'm also going to be singing some songs that I've never sung before. There's a couple of songs that with Little Alet that no one's ever heard, which are a bit more fun as well. So yeah, watch this space. They will definitely, Little Alet will definitely be there on the big screen in the background, but I don't think the budget goes to a hologram. <laughs> Last question before we finish. Did you actually gnaw away half a sofa out of fear from watching Doctor Who as a child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. It's so weird, isn't it? What, 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 why do you do that as a kid? Do you know what I mean? I, I loved the program so much, but I almost couldn't bear to watch it. And my mum and dad must have had this rubber or leather, fully rubber, actually. Uh, bless their hearts, they didn't have a lot of money. And my mum had no idea that I'd been doing it. And one day she was hoovering behind the sofa and she just saw reams of teeth marks in the back of it where I'd been watching it, kind of going, oh my God! You know, <laughs> yeah, that, that was me. Uh, very, very very odd very odd kid (laughs) alan it's been so lovely talking to you thanks so much it's really lovely talking to you as well and thanks for bringing up some uh, really mad memories i'm 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 the guy who dresses up in a pork pie hat and tights and bites sofas wow (laughs) best of luck with full circle and merry christmas and merry christmas to you too Massive thanks again to Alad for joining me for such a brilliant chat. It's definitely out there as one of my favourites. And also bonus points to Alad for being the most technically competent interviewee I've ever encountered. I couldn't believe it when he offered to record his own audio before we started. Seriously, mind blown. Alad's latest album, One Voice Full Circle, is out now. Stick it on your Christmas list. And his Full Circle tour begins in March 2024 and runs until November. You can see all the dates on his website, officialalladjones.com. 
hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of celebrity catch up as i always say i know there's lots of podcasts to choose from so thank you so much for choosing this one if you like what you hear please subscribe it's totally free and if you'd like to support the show visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate it's always nice to get a five star rating or review and also people are more likely to listen if someone else says it's worth it so please do that on your podcast platform of choice it would totally make my day and please follow on social media and share the pod so others can discover and listen too just search for celebrity catch up and you'll find me until next time thanks for listening